0: Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to make that prayer true for us today. We ask you to join us here this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus name. Amen. Please sit. In his letter to the Ephesians, St. Paul gives that church and, by extension, us three great promises relative to the arrival of Jesus Christ. And it's appropriate that we read about them this morning, just after Christmas. Jesus has come, and now we're going to start to hear what we're going to get out of it. Now, I know that Jesus says it is better to give than to receive, but here's the proof That at least on Christmas, it really is about the gifts we're given rather than the gifts we give. We all spent our entire childhoods being told that it's better to give than to receive. And that's true. Jesus is himself quoted as saying that in Acts chapter 20. Uh, But our childhood preference for receiving gifts is completely validated on Christmas. On Christmas, we receive The best gift ever, a gift that we get, the gift of God himself, come to save us. And this gift comes, St. Paul says, with these sort of ancillary gifts and promises too. You heard Paul's prayer for that church and for you. I pray, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you... A spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened you may know one, what is the hope to which he has called you, two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. So a gift. This spirit of wisdom and revelation that comes with three promises. Hope to which you have been called riches of his glorious inheritance and immeasurable greatness of his power. Hope, riches and power. Sounds pretty sweet, right? Wouldn't we like to get that under our Christmas tree? This gift of revelation and wisdom is going to be given to us, according to Paul, as we come to know God. So again, this is Christmas appropriate. It's at Christmas that we really start to begin to know God, isn't it? After all, we've read John's prologue the last few weeks. No one says John has ever seen God. It is in the coming of the Son that God is made known. Jesus makes God known to us. So it's at Christmas and in the gift of Jesus that we begin to know what our God is like. So to find out more about our God and about each of these three promises, I'd like to turn our attention for a moment to our other reading, the story about wise men from Matthew chapter 2. Matthew records that wise men came to Herod asking about the child that had been born king of the Jews. Now, Matthew is the only gospel writer to talk about the wise men. And even Matthew doesn't say that there were three of them, actually. We've come to think of them as a group of three because they bring three kinds of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But nobody really knows. Nobody, in fact, really knows much of anything about the wise men. They maybe were kings. We certainly sing that, but we don't know that. Um, Maybe there were three of them, maybe not. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that the wise men themselves are not really the point of this story. In fact, I'd even like to suggest to you that the gifts they bring aren't the point of the story, even though that's the part that makes it into the Christmas pageant. Again, on Christmas, we're going to focus on a gift that we receive, not a gift that we offer And this little story, this traditionally thought of as about gifts given to the baby Jesus by these three wise men. I think we can actually see into the story and see that it's actually about gifts given by God through Jesus Christ to the people. And the wise men will help us to see that. And more specifically, it's about these gifts given that Paul records in Ephesians. Hope. To which we have been called, riches of his glorious inheritance, and immeasurable greatness of his power, hope, riches, and power. So when the wise men come to Herod, they say, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. So they come. To a king looking for a king. But look closer. It's a special kind of king they're looking for. I mean, Herod is a king, for goodness sake. You have to imagine how surprised he must be to see men coming into his chambers, asking to see the king of the Jews. Herod thinks that he's the king of the Jews. So he's a little surprised to hear this, that another king of the Jews has just been born. So he calls his Advisors, and they read to him a little piece of the prophet Micah, which says, From Bethlehem shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. So this is a different kind of king. Herod is hearing about a king that is different from the kind of ruler he is. Herod is the kind of king who... When the wise men don't obey him and don't come back and tell him where the baby Jesus has been born, he's going to order the slaughter of all the boys in the area to keep his throne secure. This is an evil so profound, a grab for power so profound that the church remembers it every year on the feast day of the holy Innocents, These wise men have come for a different kind of king. As Micah says, a king, a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. This is a shepherd king, not a regular king. They don't want a king like Herod. And this is the first promise we get in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, it says that we may know the hope to which he has called us. The hope of Jesus Christ is that he's going to be a different kind of king, a shepherd, not a tyrant. And in his coming as shepherd king, Jesus shows us something about our God. Our God is a God who, in addition to demanding things of his creation, like we might imagine a king would, in fact, overcomes those demands and gives things to His creation, a caring king, a shepherd king. Remember this theme that we've been carrying through Advent and Christmas of commandments and promises. This is a God, a God we have, who rather than setting up an obstacle course of righteousness and purity that we need to navigate to get to him, sends his son to us. To be our shepherd. A God who comes out of his heavenly realms and joins us down here on earth. And this joining, this getting down and dirty with us, leads us to our second promise. We are promised by Paul in Ephesians, by God through Paul in Ephesians, the riches of Christ's inheritance. But... As you might have guessed, in light of a God who is born on earth in a stable, these riches are unlike any riches we might ordinarily expect. When the advisors tell Herod about this prophecy, and they quote from Micah, there's another really interesting sentence in that prophecy. Let me read to you the whole thing. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. That's Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And it makes, I think, an interesting implication. Bethlehem, it says, is not least because it's the place from which this shepherd king will come. Not because of anything else about it. Apparently, there's nothing... Else in particular to commend Bethlehem to us. It's not least because it's the place where Jesus is born. It is by its association with Jesus that it is not least. And this shows us something else about our God. Our God has an interesting association with things that are the least, doesn't he? He is interested in the least. He comes to a place of no particular importance to an unmarried woman, a virgin. He comes to a stable. He comes as a weak, human baby. God, our God, uses the least to accomplish the great. Remember when Philip finds Nathanael in the first chapter of John and tells him about Jesus, this Jesus who has come. Nathanael responds, wait, he's from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip responds with those immortal words, come and see. In other words, incredibly, yes, yes. That's exactly the kind of place that God chooses to do his work. And these are the riches of the inheritance of God's children. The riches we get are that he chooses the poor. We are involved with a God who chooses the weak, the lowly. A God who chooses to come to and be with and save sinners. A God who chooses us. So, what do we have so far? First, this God on earth, this God come to earth is a shepherd king. Not a king who demands his way and then says off with their heads to those who oppose him. A shepherd king who cares for his flock, who leaves the 99 to seek out and save the one who is lost. Second, we have a God who chooses to do his work in the place least likely. A God who comes to work in the weak, in the sick, in the lonely, in the scared, even in the undeserving. A God who comes to sinners. He chooses to dwell with and redeem us. And if this is the kind of God we worship, then something else must be true, too. Coming into contact with a God such as this is surely a profound experience. A God like this is bound to have an incredible effect on the people he meets. And of course, that's exactly what happens. When the wise men finally get to Jesus after following the star, they they give him the gifts, they bow down, they worship him, they pay him homage. Then they go back home. But they go by a different way. They don't go back to Herod. Matthew says they left for their own country by another road. A famous fourth century archbishop of Constantinople, Gregory of Nazianzus, derived an overarching truth from this passage. He said that, quote, having come to know Jesus, we are forbidden to return by the way we came. In other words, this is a meeting that will change you. Jesus will change you. You. And that is our final promise this morning. That's the immeasurable greatness of his power that Paul is talking about in Ephesians. His power, the power of God in Jesus Christ, is so great that no one can come away from it unchanged. The wise men came away from Jesus and went home by another road. And we, too, Come away from our meeting with our Savior forever changed. We are made new. We are being transformed into His likeness. Remember the tension that we've been talking about these last several weeks between commandments and promises, what God asks of us and what God promises to give us. A new life in Christ resolves the tension. By faith, The promise is actually forming us into the people that the commandment desired. Commandment becomes promise and we are made new and now clothed in Christ. Miracles are happening. We love. We forgive. We serve sinners serving the Lord. God's power is indeed immeasurably great. So as we now come away from Christmas, like the wise men leaving the stable, as the days get longer, hopefully, as the Christmas decorations come down from inside our homes, let's always remember that Christmas is not the only time we meet. Jesus Christ, not the only time we meet our Savior. His coming at Christmas promises us more than that. First, his coming promises hope. Hope for a shepherd king, a king who is always with us, caring for us, giving us what he requires of us. Second, his coming promises Us the riches of his inheritance, the wonderful riches of his using the least to accomplish the great, using the poor, the lonely, using the hurting, using forgiven sinners like us to spread the good news of his salvation. But best of all, using a criminal's cross to accomplish that salvation, your salvation. And the salvation of the world. Finally, the coming of Jesus Christ promises us the immeasurable greatness of his power. It promises us new life. Changed hearts. A resurrection. It promises that we cannot and will not hear the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ who lived and died as one of us to reconcile us to a holy God forever. It promises us that we cannot hear that announcement and come away from it unchanged. If anyone is in Christ, announces Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, they are a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. Today, today, And every Sunday, and in every Bible study, and in every small group, every prayer meeting, meet your Savior, Jesus Christ, once again, and again, and again. Recite the creed. Reaffirm your faith. Come to the table. Taste his body and blood broken and shed for you. Be reminded that even for you, The new has come. You are a sinner. In him, you are saved today, right now. He is with you. He is for you. He is at work in you. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, who does all of this for you.